Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. And in this podcast, we're taking a closer look at Chinese consumers. With a population of 1.4 billion people, China has more consumers than anywhere else in the world, four times that of the United States. And much of that market remains underpenetrated. Take, for example, the fast food chain KFC. It has almost 3,000 more outlets in China than in the US. But on a per capita basis, the number of KFC restaurants in the country is still 60% lower than in America. The rise of the Chinese consumer is not a new story. Increasing wealth and the spread of technology are seeing Chinese people spend more and in more sophisticated ways. But their tastes are developing fast and not always as we might expect. It's no overstatement that understanding the patterns and trends of the Chinese consumer is critical for any investor in the region. To talk us through exactly how investors should be thinking about this market and how consumption in China plays into the country's economic narrative, I'm joined by two of Fidelity's portfolio managers in Hong Kong, both experts in the field. They're Hyomi Ji and Dale Nichols. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. Hyomi, let me start with you. So China has been trying to rebalance its economy for many years away from, uh, let's say, production more towards uh, consumer and away from uh, the export and investment-led system that fueled its rise. Where is it today on that trajectory? So, yes, you're absolutely right, Paris. From macro-wise, household consumption in China has been contributing more and more to GDP over the past decade. That's not new. And China is relying more on consumer spending away from export or investment that it has done before. This trend will only accelerate from here when we think about this continued uncertainty about the path of deglobalization and also the recent outbreak of global pandemic will accelerate that process even further in China. And Dale, coming to you, Hyomi mentioned the pandemic. What specifically do you think that the impact this has on, on the consumption story in China? Um, I think it, it sort of depends on, on you know, which part of consumption that you're talking about. Anything that's sort of more interpersonal, you know, the more service-related areas are clearly the areas that have, that have suffered more, not surprisingly. Uh, so the travel-related areas still lag pretty significantly. Restaurants are coming back, but it sort of varies by format. But most of the restaurants that we talk to are still not back to being flat year on year. There's there's a couple of formats that are do, doing better than that. And then in retail, I'd say slightly better again. But again, depending on depending on which brands that you're talking about, the better brands are seeing positive numbers. But I'd say for you know probably retail as a whole, uh, probably behind with obviously you know e-commerce doing much better. And I want to just expand on that area of, of e-commerce, because obviously not just in China, but globally, the surge in e-commerce has been one of the most significant consequences of, of the pandemic. So we've seen kind of local shops and markets being closed, uh, millions of people in lockdowns, and all resorting to the country's digital infrastructure to do their shopping. So Hyomi, if we think about wet markets, those markets selling fresh groceries, these have traditionally been very popular with Chinese families, and especially with older, less tech-savvy shoppers. Now, is this an area that you expect to move online also? Yes, absolutely. I think the 
transition from offline to online in fresh grocery area will be very, very fast. So when I spent a couple of weeks last year through my uh, homestay project in Chengdu with this family, they went to wet market every single day, sometimes two times a day because they wanted the most fresh ingredients for their uh, dishes at home. Even though they were already buying a lot of things from Tmall, Jingdong, Taobao, and were ordering things through Meituan, they were not tapping on fresh grocery. Things are changing now because they were forced to stay home and not go out at all to continue this daily habit. So what's really happening at the moment is those people who are reluctant to use online grocery, mainly older age group of consumers or those who are living in the lower tier cities. Now, these people are coming into online grocery market. So if we talk with the companies who are in this business, they all say that since the Chinese New Year this year, they are seeing three to four times of growth of their online grocery business. So I think there is a structural change in consumers' behavior when it comes to fresh online grocery. And the established players such as uh, internet giants like Alibaba and Jingdong and Tencent definitely want to be more active in this field, working together with the offline retailers such as SunArt. The Dale, one of the things I'm also conscious of when we talk about e-commerce is that, you know, we, we typically approach it from a vantage point of things transitioning from offline to online like in the context of groceries but actually now are there areas which are sort of they've almost never been offline they're sort of they're, they're consumer propositions where e-commerce is the sort of the dominant delivery mechanism and we've made this almost leapfrog to digital delivery to the customer I'd, I'd probably point to other areas for areas like payments although credit cards are used you, you've seen much more of a rapid shift to alipay to wechat pay that sort of thing I think there's a lot of young consumers that have just completely skipped that step. And that's incidentally something that's very strong about the, uh, you know, the e-commerce platforms in China. And that is the fact that they own that payment portion of the transaction as well. So I think it's something that kind of in some ways distinguishes them from their global peers. The growth in penetration in China in, in online has just been, has been faster than anywhere. And it makes sense just given the fact that in a lot of these third and fourth tier cities, you didn't have this retail build out 40, 50 years ago that you had in the West. So the transition you know, happens faster. I do think you know, something that probably separates China from maybe some of the other markets is the degree of integration of, of online and offline. The big platforms, the Alibabas, et cetera, of the world uh, making huge investments in, uh, in offline as well and really looking to integrate the offline and online sides, particularly the data sharing between, between both sides. That's something that's, that's very special that's happening in China. One of the things that I'm curious about, especially in this sort of background of, of, of deglobalization as you, as you talk about it, is the rise or potential interest in local brands in China. You know, what are we seeing in, in this area? You know, are, are Chinese consumers now starting to prioritize and prefer local brands? I think it could still vary category by category. But from the big picture perspective, I think the Chinese consumers, uh, as they get more educated and more affluent and they become more confident about their own 
product quality and brand, I think there is definitely this shift from preference in multinational brands towards Chinese local brands is is definitely happening. So uh, based on some of the recent survey data done by China Market Research Group, 5,000 people across 15 different cities, the preference for local brands over international brands was only about 15% 10 years ago. 2011, it already went up to about 60% in 2016. But right after the pandemic, just a couple uh, months back, that number went up to above 85%. So there is very clear trend among the uh, general group of consumers to prefer Chinese brands. When it comes to specific categories, I think where the technology or brand heritage really matters, there is still strong preference for overseas brands. So let's say fashion luxury brands, where the brand story and heritage really matters. I think people are still lining up outside the stores of Hermes, Chanel, Cartier, that that's happening. And uh, the good multinational companies who are very good in localizing their management team and be very effective with the emerging social media as the main tool of their marketing, their business is still very, very strong. Those who are slow in adapting to this new trend, whether it's new consumer behavior, preference, or new channels of marketing, the future for these kind of multinational companies is not as good compared to the others. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. It really varies by category. You think about a, a category like autos, the best-selling autos are still the foreign brands, but for some of the FMCG categories now, it's really the up-and-coming, the hot brands are, are, are local. You, know, you see them getting, you know, in some cases, better pricing, which I think is really encouraging. And what do you put that success down to? Is that an aspect of sort of national pride? Is it, is it better innovation within those products? You know, why are we seeing that preference for local brands in these categories? I think they're just doing a better job. They're just very innovative and they're fast, I think. is you know, Obviously, they understand the local needs. Uh, and they're just doing a better job of of, uh, of product development over time. Yeah, and I think also the consumer is is more open to accepting the quality and, and better performance of some of the local brands as well. Now, one Chinese name that's done exceptionally well in the domestic market is Guaozhou Mutai, a high-end brand of the Baijiu beverage category, a very strong alcoholic spirit. Asia editor Neil Goff spoke to analyst Ben Lee about why it's done so well. Usually you don't need to pour too much. Wow, the aroma is, is quite overpowering of, of the Maotai. So, Ganbei. Ganbei. Cheers. Wow. Yeah, it's very strong, right? Yes. Yeah. It sort of gives you a burning um, taste. Very much so. So with me here today here on a Zoom call to compare tasting notes is Ben Lee, uh, Fidelity's consumer analyst based in Hong Kong. I thought maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about what Baijiu is and, and maybe some of the history there, how it became such a, a big deal. Yeah, sure. So it is really a type of uh, Chinese liquor that is distilled from various types of grains. Uh, and then there are many types of Baijiu. Uh, and then each type usually adopts a different fermentation and processing methods. And the key difference for Baijiu is it usually comes in fairly high alcohol content. I think it typically 
uh, between 40 to 60 percent. So it's so it's much stronger than uh, than a whiskey, for example. If we measured by volume on pure alcohol basis, then in China, Baijiu is basically 80 percent of the total alcoholic beverages market. The rest 20 percent is mainly beer, and then wine, Western liquor is kind of small. Wow, that's a lot of Baijiu. Yeah, exactly. Why it's popular in China is really pure cultural reasons, I would say. Um, because Baijiu as a beverage has ex- existed in China for thousands of years. It is widely consumed at, uh, for example, banquets, uh, weddings, and family gatherings, for example. And especially for the business dinners. Uh, in China, the socializing, the bonding of business elites, that tend to happen on dinner tables. Even deal making, most of the time, happens on dinner tables as well. And, and Baijiu has been uh, a very important facilitator uh, of that relationship building process. How did Mao Tai in particular become such a big deal in China? Mao Tai now is the largest brand in the Baijiu industry, uh, and it is also the most high-end brand. And that image, historically, that has been strengthened by the use of it in national banquet occasions. Just to give you uh, some sense of the pricing, its core product uh, is selling for 2,500 RMB per bottle, so that's about 360 US dollar. And then Maltai, you know, it's a very long established company, but it recently had a, a bit of a milestone when it became the most valuable A share in China. It overtook one of the biggest uh, Chinese banks as basically China's most valuable company by market cap. How do you, how do you reckon that? What's going on there? I think Maltai is really a very unique brand. Um, first, it has a very strong brand equity. Um, you know, the, we talked about how expensive it is, and that's really a reflection of that brand strength. It can only be produced in a multi-town. The production process is also quite unique. The cycle is very long. It takes at least five years to produce a bottle of multi. So the supply is very limited. Now this, I mean, this is maybe an extreme example of premiumization, but it is a broader trend that, that we're seeing kind of across the consumer space. Yeah, definitely. Because if you look at the per capita consumption of alcohol in China, it is not really growing anymore. Mm. And I would, I would say the Baijiu category has larger room for premiumization potential comparatively, um, simply because of a very wide price range for a bottle of Baijiu. The price can start from as low as 2 RMB, so that's maybe 30 cents US. Uh, and it goes all the way up to, say, 2,500 RMB for Maltai's core product. High in Baijiu, that is only 0.4% of total Baijiu demand or total Baijiu volume in China. So as people you know, drink less because of a more healthy lifestyle, they definitely want to drink better. And that's why we will continue to see consumers trading up to better, uh, more expensive, and higher-end Baijiu brands. We'll leave you to enjoy the, the rest of your glass of Baijiu, and uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Neil. Analyst Ben Lee there talking to Asia editor Neil Goff about Maotai, an example of a powerful domestic brand. So Dale, Ben spoke of this trend of premiumization that is taking place, Chinese consumers opting to trade up uh, for goods and services. Now, is that something that you're seeing in specific categories or across the board? I think it's fair to say we're seeing that we're seeing that across the board. In any meeting we're having with companies, it's a, you know where prices are going, how the mix is changing, how it's moving up. You know, 
part of the strategy of management, but it's it's generally coming through uh, in the numbers. An example would be the auto sector. We saw you know the first decline in the auto sector last year in a couple of decades, but within that, the premium category still grew. And you know, with the current recovery that we've seen in the auto market, you know, the premium brands have all come back faster. So for me, I think it's it's pretty much across the board. And that's really interesting. Hear me. I mean, given the the background of the pandemic, I mean, we could expect that people will be more careful about how they spend. Is that is that how we're seeing it? So, so that that's a very interesting question because I also think what's happening at the moment might seem counterintuitive at first glance because. The, the economy was at still stop for a couple of weeks or months, and people are worried about their income and also export and all these things. However, you are seeing very strong numbers in almost all the premium categories, as Dale just mentioned. It's not just happening in the in the big ticket item like auto, but we are seeing the same trend in Baijiu that Ben just mentioned, and also in beer and dairy, all the categories that we can name it. So I think that's mainly coming from two things. One is this long-term structural trend of Chinese consumers becoming richer so that the rising middle class and increasing urbanization have led to Chinese consumers' appetite for trade up. And there is nothing that changes this long-term trend just with the pandemic. That That's one thing. And secondly, I think... What this pandemic led to happen was, was first, it has disproportionately negative impact to the, to the lower income people, but to the middle to higher income people, the impact was, frankly speaking, less so. There, there has been good enough saving for them and their businesses, especially domestic oriented businesses are still okay. So there was not much negative in, income impact to these group of consumers who normally consume premium products. And secondly, a lot of consumption that could have happened offshore by travel and overseas education, none of that is happening at the moment. So some of that offshore spending is spent onshore in the premium categories through shopping and also local travel. So you're talking a lot there about kind of affordability, but one of the other trends that we're seeing globally is around this area of conscious consumption, you know, where people are focused on the provenance of of the goods that they're buying, the sustainability characteristics of, of the products they're buying. Is that something that we're seeing in any way in China as well? Yes, I think uh, we, we are starting to see some early signs of that in China market as well. So even in China, when you go to supermarkets right now, when you walk through the aisle of soy sauce, you can see the, the premium products, which say no preservatives made of organic ingredients and made of recycled bottles and all these things. So it's still at a very early stage. I, I would say a little bit behind, but it's coming up. What's more interesting is after the pandemic, a lot of the leading brands, uh, especially the consumer brands in China, started to advertise what they are doing to their suppliers and to their employees. These things didn't happen before. Before, they were mostly just talking about the consumers themselves. But now they are saying that we are a responsible company who help everyone in the ecosystem. We were not, you know, slow in paying our 
uh, salaries and bonuses to our own employees. We make sure that all the safety requirements are in place. And also we try to help support our suppliers. They also oftentimes highlight how they are cutting some commissions and fees for the, the people who are doing business on their platform, which is very evident in the case of Alibaba or Meituan, which are the platform businesses. Yeah, Paris, I was just going to add, I think you may have seen yeah, the results of a survey, a uh, consumer survey that we did in China on the ground back in April, which I thought was really interesting. I guess we were all surprised, well, I guess, first of all, just how big quality was as a decision factor in their consumption decisions, but also uh, particularly in the home decoration category, just how important the provenance of the materials was. That was something that I think, you know, we're all surprised at just how important and how often it was cited as a factor uh, amongst the people that we surveyed. I mean, I guess it's another sign of Chinese consumers becoming more discerning in their habits and, their, and in their preferences. And on that theme, we're going to hear another of our analysts now, this time Jason Fu, who covers consumer appliances in China. Investment director Catherine Young caught up with him on a call earlier. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jason. Now, you cover consumer appliances, so things like white goods and electronics, you know, really a bellwether of consumption. But can you please highlight what changes you're seeing in the way Chinese consumers are buying such products? Um, I think there are several trends worth highlighting. We start to see consumers have greater knowledge in product functions and features. Sometimes they even know the product better than those salespersons. I think such change drives diversified demand in home appliance space. Especially, we see premium and value-for-money products continue to outperform the industry. Another trend would be purchase activities shifting from offline to online. Since COVID-19 outbreak, online sales contribution has already increased from 30% to nearly 50%. Jason, you mentioned that consumers often know more about the product than the actual salesperson. So in your view, what's driving this sophistication amongst consumers? Yeah, I think first of all, um, the increasing wealth leads to demand for greater choice. Besides, driven by the penetration of smartphone, Chinese consumers have better access to product information online and spend more time in virtual space. I think at the early stage, e-commerce may be driven by lower distribution cost, but now it's still growing due to consumer behavior change. It's interesting. I've just literally gone around my house before I spoke to you and counted the number of Chinese brands in terms of this area of consumer goods. So a question to you. Would you be in the same position as me in terms of are you yourself increasing the number of Chinese brands when it comes to home appliances? Yeah, um, I think it depends on the, the business. Take air conditioner, for example. You know, because of the aircon product quality, Chinese brands are getting very strong in this space. But I think in other spaces, it's quite different. Um, for example, like cleaning appliance, we do see some foreign brands, especially like Dyson or Shark are expanding their business presence in China. I think that's largely driven by their product innovation and then technology advantage. But I think the way people think about this business will change. And I think Chinese players learn this thing very fast. So I, I do expect Chinese players to become stronger and stronger and then find new business opportunities 
in those niche markets. Thanks, Jason. And maybe one day we'll see more of these Chinese brands hit the high streets in other countries. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Catherine. Jason Fu there, an analyst with a focus on Chinese consumer appliances, talking to investment director Catherine Young. Dale, the Chinese are spending their money on more than just white goods, aren't they? I mean, I'm referring to their growing appetite for more experiential spending. Can you help us understand a little bit more around what we're seeing in this space? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. When we talk about you know the consumption trends, you know, people often tend to think it's about goods, but the services aspect is just as important. In fact, it may be you know even more important. Up until the COVID pandemic, travel trends were extremely strong, and that's both domestically and overseas. And and obviously, we're seeing that dip pretty significantly now. But I, I, you know, I'm a believer that that long-term trend is definitely really strong. If you think about passport penetration in China, we're talking in the teens. So there's still really good growth potential for for travel overall. In terms of destinations, I think you know it's natural to go close first. So I think the likes of of Hong Kong, like Macau, etc., are, are, are going to be the initial targets. Other parts of Asia. But as the traveler develops over time, your big cities in Europe are going to be uh, are going to be pretty you know significant targets, and you know we see some of that the five cities, five days types of types of packages that are you know again pre COVID were pretty common. But I think you'll see you know the traveler definitely be more sophisticated um, over time in 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 the way they travel and the way they spend. It's across a range of categories though. Education is you know it's hugely important for for everyone in in China, but particularly for families. So. It's an interesting area because there's a lot of growth, but it's also you know pretty price insensitive. And we've seen a, a trend of that moving online. And this would be one of the key areas where the whole pandemic here has really accelerated that trend. You know, I think it's fair to say, you know, services overall uh, is an area of, of 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 real growth in China. And what about from your perspective here? I mean, where do you see the Chinese consumer going next? I mean, if we take a bit of a longer term view, you know, what are the areas still to sort of come in terms of the the Chinese consumption story? I, I continue to think premiumization and technology-driven innovative business models are two areas where its growth potential is underestimated. The, the strength of these business models were highlighted during pandemic, during crisis, because when the existing or traditional business models couldn't do well, these areas really shone through. So I think its sustainability and the longevity of these new areas, they remain underestimated and it still offers great investment opportunities. So let me ask a final question to both of you. I'm really curious about whether you can identify one or two Chinese brands that you know, children in Europe or the US are going to be aware of in five or 10 years time that they've never heard of, you know, not heard of at the moment. Dale? I'm going to go with a brand called JNBY. Um, so this is an apparel brand. It's only the, it, I think it's probably the first designer apparel brand in, uh, in China to really establish itself. Obviously, it's a discretionary item. So it's going through, you know, a tough phase now. But, you know, just looking at the way they've developed the business, the way they develop their designers, they're very, very creative, innovative, and I think just a strong management team. And I think there's just good potential for them to insert themselves really uh, over the long term. Hear me. I'd say Maltai. Maltai's current overseas business is very, very small because they are busy 
just to meet the demand of China domestically. But I think in the five to 10 years time, there is potential that Maotai could start to tap into overseas markets and global consumers will start to appreciate this uh, unique taste of Chinese high-end liquor. So what we've heard today is that the Chinese consumer story has a long way to go. But importantly, there are some key aspects of it, which I think are probably less familiar uh, to many investors out there. The first is really this move to local brands and the, the rise and increasing prominence of, of local brands uh, relative to, to international brands. And of course, while we're seeing it's a market where digitization e-commerce continues to be prominent, there are areas like grocery, which are still in the early stages of transitioning online. I think this idea that Chinese consumers and Chinese companies are starting to foreground sustainability, I think is something, again, that is quite new, but clearly something that is rising in importance as far as they're concerned. And despite also the fact of there being such a deep domestic market for consumer brands to serve, it's possible that we'll be talking about Chinese brands in global markets in the not too distant future. And that brings us to the end of this episode. So I want to just thank my guests, Hyomi Ji and Dale Nichols, and to our analyst contributors, Ben Lee and Jason Fu. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, then please rate us on your podcast app. And if you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website, fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Seb Morton-Clark and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Sue, Eva Tam and Alex Wilcox, and the editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us here at Fidelity International, thank you very much. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.